there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. A lot of religious people use this to mean, you've got to be a Christian, you've got to follow Jesus, you've got to do that. This is the only way, there's only one way, and if any, anybody doesn't do that, they're going to hell. And that's fine. That's the way people want to look at that. That's not my business. But it's a lot like poking a pin through a black piece of construction paper and holding it up to the world and looking through that, that pinhole. You can see the light. The light will come through it. Light will come through. Not a lot of light, but light will come through. And you can actually make out some things on the other side of that pinhole. But if you took a hole punch, the kind you punch in paper so you make put in three ring binders and things like that, and you punch a hole in that construction paper, more light's going to come, a lot more light's going to come through. And when you look through that hole, you'll be able to see a lot more of what's on the other side of that construction paper. The bigger the aperture, the more light will come through and the more you will be able to see. I am not here to say that somebody who's poked a pinhole through or a paper punch through or a cut a cup size hole through the construction paper. I'm not here to say any of those people are right or wrong, good or bad, smarter or dumber. I don't care. I want to see as much as I can see. I want to include as much as it is possible to include. I want to expand my awareness to know as much as I am capable of knowing. And when I say knowing, I don't mean in an intellectual sense. I mean in an inner sense. I mean the kind of knowing they talked about in the old days when they meant to know something with your heart. It's more than an intellectual knowing because it comes from your being. Your intellect may be mixed in with it, but it comes from your being. It comes from that depth, the profound depth of your being that is so difficult for us to fathom. And it's difficult for us to fathom it because we go through the wrong gate. We take the wrong road. We take the easy way. The easy way is the way of the senses. We look out, we see the world through our five senses, and we get attached to the world through our five senses. We covet through our five senses. We lust through our five senses. We desire through our five senses. We strive through our five senses. We are pained through our five senses. We increase our misery through our five senses. We increase our suffering through our five senses. We increase all of our desires because when we cling to a desire, it must fade away because all physical things fade away eventually. They all change. They're changing constantly. They're constantly in a flux, constantly in a flow. So they're changing, and it's bound to change and go away. What you have now that you want and that you're clinging to must disappear. And when it does, you will suffer. That's the easy way, and it leads to destruction. What is destroyed? Everything that arises must pass away. So it's destroyed. It goes back to where it came from. It arises out of nothingness. It goes back to nothingness. It arises out of the void. It goes back to the void. If you're clinging to it, you lose it. If you lose it and you wanted it, you did want it if you were clinging to it, then you suffer. You suffer the loss of that thing and you suffer the psychological anguish of losing that thing by resisting its passing. 
enter through the narrow gate. Well, what is the narrow gate? Well, I'll tell you what the narrow gate is. The narrow gate is within. The narrow gate is looking, and it's, it's closing off the five senses, which is the wide gate. You can see the five senses is a broad gate. But a narrow gate is looking, turning your eye inward and looking within yourself. It's a very small peephole at first. It's very difficult to see ourselves because the five senses are like the Las Vegas Strip. You know, you walk down the Las Vegas Strip, you drive down the Las Vegas Strip, and it's overwhelming. It's overpowering. The noise, the lights, the people, the smells, it's crazy. So it's very difficult under those circumstances to look within. You have to train yourself how to do that. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. They enter through it because it's the easiest way. It's the most natural thing for us once we have acquired a false personality, once we've acquired a false sense of who we are, of what we are, of what we're for. Once we have acquired the world's use for us, we're lost. It's the easiest thing in the world to go that way, to just go with the flow, because everything's flowing that way. The world is flowing that way. The stream is flowing that way, and the current is strong. And there are lots of people going along with the current. There are lots of people rafting down the river. It's easy to go that way. I'm asking you to go another way, a different way. Doing things the easiest way is often acting mechanically. You know this through your own practice of uncritical, detached, separated self-observation. Now, maybe you've only done that a half a dozen times in your life. Uncritical, detached, separated self-observation. Maybe you've only had real quality self-observation half a dozen times in your life. Those half a dozen times can change the course of your entire life. They are that powerful. They are that strong. The light is that powerful that it can change the course of your life. One time can change the course of your life. One quality moment of self-observation, quality self-observation, and self-observation, just like everything else, they're different qualities. We're not talking about quantity here. Quantity is not nearly as important as quality. You could fill this room up with the kind of rocks that gold is found in. You would have a quantity, but the quality of those rocks, when you finally crushed them and melted the gold out of them, and then refined the gold to the purest gold that we can refine, you may only have a quarter of an ounce. It's incredible how many tons of rocks it takes to get a fraction of an ounce of gold. So it's not about quantity, it's about quality. When the work speaks of effort, it's talking about anti-mechanical effort. It's talking about not being mechanical. It's talking about entering through the narrow gate, not going through the wide gate, but entering through the narrow gate, not taking the easy way, not doing what's easiest for you, not doing what's natural for you. Rex and I were talking last night. Actually, Rex was talking and I was listening. And he said something about someone has suggested to let the boys, they were Boy Scouts, let the boys do what each of them is good at. And Rex said, no, they need to be developing and responsible. And I said, well, I think that's a good idea. I don't think we should all do what we're good at. I think we should all do what we're not good at. You've been doing what you're good at your whole life. It's time to start doing what you're not good at. That is effort. Doing what you're good at, where's the effort in that? That's more like joy. That's more like, yahoo, I get to do what, I, what I'm best at, what I love. What about doing what you don't like? I don't like not expressing negative emotions. The truth is, is that people love negative emotions and they don't like not expressing them. The work says do that. Don't express negative emotions. And what do we do? We express negative emotions about not expressing negative emotions. <laughs> we get all grumpy about it. I said something to somebody last night at dinner. Said, did that hurt your feelings? And she said, yeah. I realized that no matter what people say, if they get hurt by the truth, they don't really want the truth. Because 
the amount of pain that we experience, that's what hurt is, some kind of psychological or emotional pain. The amount of pain that we experience is directly proportional to the amount of resistance we have. No resistance, no pain. So when somebody's hurt, they're resisting. They're saying no. They're holding their hand up. They're pushing you away. They're saying no. They're pushing life away. They're saying no. If you're in pain, it's because you're resisting. If you want to be out of pain, stop resisting and start to embrace what life gives you. But I don't want this. <laughs> That's resistance. Working against our automatic habits feeds us a new diet of awareness. It's a magical thing. Now, the work might say it a little differently. The work might say, well, working against our automatic habits gives us new impressions. But I say it feeds us a new diet of awareness. We become more aware. If we're more aware, the quality of everything is increased. You know this. You know this because when you're more aware, everything is more alive. Everything is more vibrant. Everything is more now. Everything is more present. What I'm saying is, is that when we work against our automatic habits, we are increasing our awareness, and that gives us a new diet based on that awareness. And the quality of the food that we're eating then, psychologically, is much better for us. You know, I remember George Oshawa said about the difference between white rice and brown rice. He said, there's nothing wrong with white rice. You just eat, have to eat 10 times as much of it to get the same nutrients that you get in brown rice. White rice is simply refined. They refine it and polish it and refine it and take away the outer husks that are more difficult to digest. They're more difficult to digest for a number of reasons. One is they're not to be digested. They're supposed to be roughage. And two is all the nutrients are on the outside. They're not on the inside. Just the opposite from us. For us, all the nutrients are on the inside. They're not on the outside. But we don't spend our time on the inside. We spend our time on the outside. We don't spend our time where all the richest nutrients are, where all the quality impressions are. We spend our time on the outside through the five senses, the wide gate, the broad path, instead of the narrow gate. Mechanical effort is what external circumstances compel us to do. It doesn't mean that there's no effort in life. Of course there's effort in life. Tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and go to work. Most of you are. And when you do, it's going to be an effort <laughs> because you had the weekend off. But it will be a mechanical effort because life will be compelling you to do it. Well, you could change all that. You could change it in the twinkling of an eye. You could say, well, I want to go to work. I want to go to work because I want to see what life has for me there. Because I know that if I go to work because I want to see what life has for me there, that I want life to be an intelligent person who is interacting with me, that is teaching me, that is helping me to see myself and to unfold, that I will have more awareness, and because I'll have more awareness, I'll be feeding on better food. I'll be getting more nutrients from everything that I see, everything that I hear, everything that I feel, everything that I experience, because I'll be eating from inside instead of from outside. I'll be feeding from inside instead of from outside. Work effort belongs to something outside life. Life compels mechanical effort. Go to work, eat, do this, do that, earn your bread by the sweat of your brow. That's what life compels us to do. It's called mechanical effort. You don't really have a choice about it. You have to eat. You probably noticed that. At your age, I'm sure you've noticed that if you don't eat, you die. There's a certain time that you don't eat, and then you get hungry, and then it gets painful, and then you don't like it, then you get weak, and you know if you don't eat, you're going to die. So you eat because you're compelled to do so. How? By life. It's a mechanical effort. The secret of work effort is to take your life as an exercise. Instead of taking your life as, man, what's happening? How come I'm not getting what I want? Take your life as an exercise. An exercise. You go to the gym, 
You know what an exercise is? You ride a bicycle, you know what an exercise is? You do chin-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, you know what an exercise is? It has a purpose. It has a purpose to strengthen some part of you. It has a purpose to tone some part of you. It has a purpose to enhance, to feed some part of you. Take life that way. Take life as an exercise, and its purpose is to develop you. Its purpose is not, oh, let's go have fun, oh, let's do this, or let's, let's do whatever life demands. We'll just go to work. Maybe if we earn enough money, then life will leave us alone and we won't have to go to work anymore. We can just go play all the time. It's possible. But how do you develop doing that? How do you develop internally doing that? Well, you don't, because you're following mechanical effort. Life's mechanical effort, what you're compelled to do. This is different. Work is not about life. It's not in life. It's outside of life. It comes from outside of life, and it's fed from outside of life, and you connect with it outside of life. You don't connect with it through the five senses. You connect with it internally. There's a certain vision that's required to generate this awareness, which gives force for work efforts. Not anyone can do this. Not anyone can do what I'm talking about. Not anyone can enter through the narrow gate. Most people go through the gate that's wide, and they take the broad road that leads to destruction. Most people do that. Many enter it. Most people do that for a reason. It's easiest. They don't have a vision of the narrow gate. They didn't even see the narrow gate. What narrow gate? What are you talking about? Are you crazy? There's no gate there. They have to have a vision. They have to be able to see it. If they can't see it, how can they possibly enter it? How can they possibly turn in the right direction if they can't see it? You've got to have the vision first. So what does it take to give us that vision? It takes life. What does life give us? It gives us mechanical effort and it gives us... What, what is life? What is life called in the work? It's called a pain factory. It's a pain factory. Life gives us suffering. Life compels us to suffer because it knows that there's no way that we will do what it wants us to do unless we are compelled to do it through pain and suffering. It's called pain compliance. We comply because of the pain. This other thing that I'm talking about is outside of life. It comes from somewhere else and it doesn't compel us. The compelling part of it is the vision and the possibility. The vision that there is another way and the possibility that I could take that other way and improve and develop myself in another direction that's not going the way of life. That doesn't mean I can't be in life. I'm just not of life. Life didn't create me. Life doesn't compel me. Life doesn't make me do what it wants me to do. But I serve a different master, a master who's found in a different place, in a different direction outside of life that calls me to move in a different direction. Yeah, that's what all these guys are talking about. Now, it's true, the people with the pinhole in the black construction paper, they don't see it that way, but they could. They punch a couple more holes in there, they could see it that way. Because it is possible to see. It is possible to make a bigger hole in the construction paper and see more. It is possible. But you see, our habits, our narrow-minded, our narrow emotional habits of separating people and separating ourselves from people and obeying life. Because life is divisive. Life is not a unifying force. Life is a divisive force. How can you say that? Well, I can say that by simply looking at life. Are there wars? Are there rumors of wars? Are there political parties? Are there races, creeds, religions? Are they all together in unity? Or are they all dividing? They're all dividing. That's what life does. Life is a divisive force. If you have this vision, something 
else that's not in life but is outside of life takes the place of that force of life and it neutralizes life so that life no longer has that effect on you. Now, it doesn't do it all at once. It's an accumulative thing. Little by little, life starts to lose its grip on you. You look at life and you think, well, yeah, but I just don't think that's really the end of it all. You start to get this vision that there could be some other way, that maybe there's something different, that maybe there's more. When that happens, life starts to unravel. Now, that doesn't mean literally unravel, although that it can. It means that your belief in life, your faith in life, your trust in life, that something that's going to lead you to something, it starts to unravel. And then real faith comes in. Real faith has to do with real vision. But you've got to have the vision. Like I said, a certain vision is required to generate this awareness, which gives force for work efforts. Why would anyone make these work efforts if they didn't have a vision? They would have no force. They could generate no force to make the effort. Why should I do that? That's crazy. I'm not going to do that. But if I do this in life, I'll earn a lot of money, and then I'll be popular, and then I'll be rich, and then I'll have whatever I want. That's what I want. Yeah, right. So whoever gets the most toys when he dies, he's the winner, except that he can't take any of those toys with him. Except Pharaoh did. Well, no, he didn't, because when they went and got his tomb, they didn't get him, too. They just got everything that was in it, which was all the riches that he didn't take with him, even though he was supposed to take with him. Life is a miraculous adventure when we're not identified with our life when it's not my life, when it's not my story, when I'm not identified with my story. How do you stop being identified with your story? Well, I'll tell you the first step. When you hear yourself telling your story, you say, wait, that's just a story. <laughs> These are just thoughts. This is just a story. This is not my history. This is just a story. That's the beginning of it, people. That's where it starts. You've got to get the shoehorn in there. It's just the beginning. Now, for some people who've gone beyond the beginning, it's no longer necessary. But for the people who are just beginning, that's necessary, do that. Say to yourself, it's just a thought. It's just a story. Let it go. It's not my story. It's not my life. Let it go. You'll just get a shoehorn between you and it. And you'll be able to squeeze yourself out of it slowly. And that's a good thing. Life then becomes our teacher rather than our taskmaster. As we are, as we come to this work, Life is our taskmaster. It's compelling us to do everything. It compels our feelings. It compels our thoughts. It compels our actions. It compels our inaction. There are times when life compels you not to act. You want to tell the police officer that's giving you the ticket that he's a buffoon and a jerk and he ought to go do his job and catch real criminals. But life compels you not to tell him that because life says if you tell him that and you get obnoxious enough, he's going to take you to jail in cuffs. You don't want to do that, so life compels you not to do that. Eventually, life compels everyone because everyone dies. Everyone shares the same fate. So if you're still fighting life, don't let me stop you. Get back out there and suffer some more. Get back out there and beat your face on the pavement a little bit more. Whatever it takes. It takes what it takes. Eventually, what we have to realize, eventually what you're going to have to accept is you are what you are. Once you accept that, you can start forward motion. So rather than life be, being our pharaoh, cracking the whip and making us build the pyramids or move this or move that or do this or do that, it becomes our teacher. With the right vision, life can be seen as an intelligent person. What I try to do is imbue life with intelligence. Is there an intelligence in life? Do you know that one cell in your body can be a finger cell or an eye cell? It can go either way. Cells are given duties. They're given jobs. There's really no reason, scientifically, there's really no reason that your finger cells can't function as eye cells. So then what that means is you could see through your fingers. No physiological reason. 
Now, there are a lot of other reasons, but there's no physiological reason. There's evidence that, not a lot of evidence, but there's evidence that can actually happen. Someone who has no eyes can run their fingers over a page, a printed page, not Braille, a printed page, without touching the page, and read the text. It's not easy to explain because we don't accept things easily. We resist things. We can see someone do it, and what we will do is look for the trick. We'll look for the, the receiver in their ear, you know, and, and somebody transmitting the words and all this other stuff, you know, telling them what the words are. We'll look for everything else because we resist. We resist our possibilities. We resist expanding our consciousness. We go back to the pinhole in the construction paper because we're used to that. Because our narrow way of looking at things is what's familiar to us. It's what is habitual for us. So that's what we return to. The vision guides us to see an object of outer life to see our observed reaction to it, and to see ourselves all at once. So we see an object in outer life. We see, say, a person. We see our reaction to it, and we see ourselves all at the same time. This is preliminary. This doesn't happen instantaneously. This takes a while. You've got to practice this. This is like riding a bicycle, or learning how to swim, or learning how to do something more difficult, like flying an airplane, driving a car, stick shift, or whatever. It takes practice. It doesn't just happen. You've got to practice to get these skills. You see a person, now as it is, you see that person and that's all you see. You don't see yourself and how you're reacting to that person. But you can practice and see that person outside of yourself, see yourself, your own reaction to that person, and see yourself all at the same time. That is possible. You can do it, but you must practice. When you do that, everything changes. The usual state of being is identified with life. As we are, we're usually identified with life. We see a person, we don't even know what our reaction, we, we know that we don't like them, or we do like them, but that's really not even a conscious awareness. We just, oh, we smile, or we, oh, I don't like that guy. I don't know what it is about him, but I just don't like him. And we don't have any idea who's there. No idea at all. We don't even know what we're reacting to. We don't see the other person, we don't see ourselves, and we're not seeing our reaction to it. We're just reacting. We're just identified with life. We're just being dragged around by it, compelled by life. And when we're identified with life and its cares, we're unable to see anything outside that sphere. When you are identified with your problems, what I'm saying doesn't mean squat to you unless you have made a little inroad that makes you jerk yourself by the scruff of your own neck and say, no, listen to this, snap out of it. If you've made the effort to make that little inroad, then it's possible to reach you. If you haven't made that effort, forget it, you're lost. If you're identified, with your, care, with your own life and with life and with cares, your worries, your concerns, what you want, you're done. You're down the road. Life has got a hook in your mouth and it's pulling you along. You're caught. Life has fished you out and it's pulling you where it wants you to go. But if you can get hold of one of these ideas, it's like a little pair of scissors that snips that line and then you're free to swim away. The vision of the esoteric lifts us above life. This is the rope that you can catch. But the problem is, is it's not enough to catch the rope. As many of you are finding out, you've got to hold on to it. And if you let go of it, and we often do, it often slips out of our hands, then we have to catch it again. And it may be a while before we find the rope again, before we get back into this now moment and find the rope again. Because when we lose that rope, it's because we saw something in life that we wanted. We let go of the rope that we were holding on to. We slip back into life, in the life sphere. We become identified. We get carried away again. And who knows? The next time we'll get an opportunity to see that rope and get hold of it. So hold on to it now, because now is what you've got. 
The mind doesn't understand that this work changes the more we understand. Let me give you an example of that. What was so may, longer be, may no longer be so, but it's liable to be something different now. In the beginning, I taught you this or that or something else. And then later, I changed that, and it was upsetting to you. What is it, this or that? It's both, but you have to have the understanding to be able to see this and that rather than this or that. If you're still punching pinholes in the black construction paper, it's this or that, right or wrong, good or bad, yes or no. If you've gotten to the point where you've been able to punch enough holes in and you can weaken it enough to make a bigger hole, then it becomes this and that, good and bad, right and wrong, because you begin to understand more because you can see more. For example, in the beginning I would say, stop disliking people in the work. So people in this room, stop disliking them. I don't have to say that very often anymore, although from time to time I still have to say that because some people return to it. They go back to disliking. It's because they have a very strong propensity habit for disliking. They have defined themselves by what they don't like, who they don't like, and so they constantly go back to that as a reminder of who they are in life, no matter how dangerous it is. Stop disliking people in the work. It can be done. But then, after a while, it changes to like what you dislike. Then becomes, okay, pick people in the work that you dislike and now like them. But that's different. I was supposed to stop disliking them. Yes, now you're supposed to pick the people that you dislike and like them. Well, why are you changing it? Because it's possible for you to grow in understanding. Because it's possible for you to like what you dislike. But life doesn't tell us that. You see, that has to come from outside of life. That's not a life principle. That comes from outside of life. It says, you can change. Life doesn't tell you you can change. Life tells you it will change you. It will make you older, it will make you this, it will make you richer, it will make you poor, it will make you healthy, it will make you sick, it will make you live, it will make you die, it will do all these other, it will make you famous, it will make you infamous. Life tells you all those things. But something outside of life tells you you can change. You can take the people the things that you now dislike and you can like them. But it takes effort. This applies to outer objects and the inner self. Too often people stop paying attention to others and focus on disliking themselves as they observe more of what is hidden. How many people I dislike here is not really that important anymore because the primary dislike I have right now is me. I don't like me because I don't like what I'm seeing. So all of our disliking gets to be poured out on ourselves then. And then we say, well, oh, they're fine. I don't mind them. It's me I don't like. But it's the same thing. Well, fine. Learn to like what you now dislike. Well, I don't like me. Good. Now learn to like you. Well, that means I'd have to accept me. Yes. But it's not for everybody. Maybe right now you just need to stop disliking this person or that person. Maybe later you'll be able to start to like them. The problem is we get too far in front of ourselves, too identified with the seen objects in life too identified with life, too identified with seeing everything outside us. What that means is that we are governed by the senses. When you are governed by the senses, you are a sense machine. What triggers you to react comes through the senses. That makes you a sense machine. You see something, you like it, you are compelled to like it, you are compelled to go after it, you are compelled to desire it, you are compelled to try and get it. That's a sense machine. Life is compelling you. You are under the compulsion of life. You are not a free agent. You are not able to do what you want to do. You think what you want to do is what life tells you to do. Life tells you what you want. 
and you obey. What I'm saying is there's something else that can tell you. It comes from outside of life and that it can free you from being compelled by life. A person isn't outside you, but is your idea of him, your imagination of him, your reaction to him. He's not the object that you see through your senses. This is very difficult to realize. It's easy to intellectually grasp. It's very difficult to realize. When you are looking at me and disliking me, you are not disliking me. You are disliking what you imagine that I am. You are disliking what you have identified with. You're disliking your old associations. You're disliking some other person, but there's nobody there. The sense object that you're perceiving, you are creating inside of yourself through your imagination, your old associations, your memories. They're not really there. That person isn't really there. When you like me, same thing. When you like me, if I am thrilled by that, that's insane. If you dislike me, if I am hurt by that, that's insane. Since there is no way that you can see me, how could you possibly like or dislike me? It's not possible because what we see is what we're imagining. Our imagination of the person, our idea of the person, our reaction to the person, not the object that we're seeing. If you find somebody else you like, well, I don't like you anymore, now I like him. Okay, it has nothing to do with me or him. It's all about you. If you get all excited about something or somebody, it has nothing to do with that person. Nothing. It's you. It's your idea of him. It's your imagination of him. Endure the unpleasant manifestations of others becomes endure the unpleasant manifestations of others without negativeness, without negativity. Oh, man. Why are you going to change in that now? Before, I was just supposed to endure the unpleasant manifestations of others. Now I have to do it without being negative? Yes. As you understand more, the work changes. As you understand more, more is required of you. You're not ready for that yet? Fine. Just endure the unpleasant manifestations of others and be as negative as you like. But try not to express negative emotions. You see, it all has to go this way, but it can't go this way until we have the understanding to hold it. This kind of work accumulates. This kind of work that I'm talking about, stop disliking these people in this room. Start liking what you now dislike. That accumulates. It's like collecting dew in the morning. You can go and shake some dew off of leaves and if you keep doing that you can get accumulation of dew. It's like a bee will fly from flower to flower and it's on its legs it will collect pollen. The pollen will just cling to the little hairs on the bee's legs and it will accumulate pollen and then it'll take it back to the colony and it'll brush that pollen off and feed it. It becomes food but it accumulates at first. And this work does that. This work that I'm telling you about accumulates. Little by little, it starts to build and build and build. And it may seem like nothing now, but later it will accumulate. It'll be more and you will be more powerful and you will have more force and you will have more ability to resist being compelled by your mechanical sense-based life. You'll be freer to go another way. One person can lift a group by working against his mechanicalness privately because this work is accumulative. Consciousness acts on consciousness, being acts on being. That's why bad company corrupts because being acts on being and consciousness acts on consciousness. Life divides, but this work unites. It holds people together where life would split and cause hatreds. Life causes hatred. I don't know how it does it, but it does it. It does it just by being life. Look around you. People hate at the drop of a hat, even if they have to go buy the hat and then drop it. Even if they have to make that much effort to hate, they will do it. 
takes a lot of effort to hate. Think about it. Uniting can only happen when we feel the work, when we seek it first, when we keep it alive inside of ourselves. And the only way you're ever going to keep it alive inside of yourself is you begin to value it. You begin to feel it. You begin to value it. You begin to see what the possibilities are for yourself. You begin to value it. You want to keep it alive inside of yourself. Then everything else just follows that, like dominoes. Everything else follows that. You start to get a feeling for the work. You desire to keep it alive in you. It'll guide you. It'll show you the way to go. You won't have to worry about that. You don't need me to show you the way to go. That's, why I'm not, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to show you the way to go. I'm here to work on myself privately. Hopefully, as you said, you're here to work on yourself privately, and we will all accumulate something because of that. This is real faith. It requires daily attention in heart and mind. Real faith is being able to see that there is another way and daily strengthening it in our heart and in our mind, with our feelings and with our thoughts. Embracing the ideas, having a feeling for the ideas, having an affection for the ideas, having an affection for the possibility of a life of unity instead of a life of division. You work on that every day and it will accumulate in you. In seen life, where people don't work on themselves daily, they accumulate a different kind of substance, which can't lead to unity. They criticize, they talk scandalously about each other behind each other's backs. They slander and hate each other, secretly and openly. They make internal accounts against one another. In seen life, this is normal. Pick any office anywhere in the United States or anywhere in the world. There's somebody that there's office gossip about. There's somebody they don't like. There's somebody they do like. There's somebody they're talking about. Oh, well, she's sleeping with the boss. Oh, he's doing that. Oh, he's sleeping with the boss or whatever. In every office everywhere. Why is that? Because in seen life, that's the way it is. It's not abnormal. It's the way it is. Where you work, that's the way it is. There are people who talk about other people. There are people who talk about other people behind their backs. There are people who slander them. There are people who slander you. There are people who dislike you. That's the way it is in seen life. All of this stuff is accumulating. Because they don't work, they remain mechanical. When you remain mechanical, you, you know what happens to machines. Anybody who's been around machinery, do you know what happens around machines? Machines get dirty. They get greasy. They get filthy. They get gummy. They get gooey. They get gunky. They get all kinds of stuff on them. And if you touch them, you get that stuff all over you, and it's hard to get it off. You can look at people who work on machines, look at their fingernails, under their nails, and you will see that they work on dirty, gunky, gooey machines, because that's what machines do. You put clean oil and grease on them. It's clean when you put it on, but soon it's all black and gritty and gunky, and it has to all be cleaned off and new, fresh put on or else the grit and the gunk and the goo starts to grind the machine away. It starts to wear it before it's time because it collects, accumulates all this stuff. That is what mechanical things do and that's what mechanical life does. It forms this thick, heavy psychological substance which accumulates making right relationship impossible. People in life are mechanical. They got, they're covered with this goo, with this gunk. They can't have relationships with other people. They have to have this other thing. Not a right, right relationship. Their relationships are entanglements. They talk about people behind their back. They slander people. They gossip about people. They hate each other. They're divisive. That's what we do when we're mechanical. We do it effortlessly. It's the wide gate and it's the broad road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. What I'm talking about is a different way that takes more effort, not mechanical effort, but work effort. And that effort has to start with vision. You've got to see the possibility first. The substance that is formed by mechanical life, it's dead. 
because it's formed by evil actions, by evil thoughts, by evil emotions. And when they're left unchecked, they accumulate like grease on an engine. The slightest unworked on evil towards another mounts up, forming this thick, dead substance that coats us internally. It's like the portrait of Dorian Gray. He went out and did all these evil, wicked things, but he stayed young and beautiful. But the portrait got uglier and uglier every time he did something wicked. And then he finally took the portrait and hid it, locked it in a room and covered it. And he would go in and see it, and it would get uglier and uglier with each of his nasty, ugly, evil actions. But he stayed beautiful and young and fresh, his body. What this is telling you is that internally, even if externally you look clean and beautiful, that internally you are getting ugly and twisted and you're being coated, covered with a substance, this thick psychological substance internally that comes from mechanical living. Once we become encoded with this internal psychological grease, we begin to lose our aliveness. We begin to lose our flexibility. We begin to lose our spontaneity. We begin to lose our ability to dig down into the depths of our own being and bring up treasures that we could bless the world with. We can't do it anymore. We can't get the door open. We can't get the treasure chest open because it's glued shut with all this gunk, this mechanical filth that's accumulated. Once you get this on you, everything you touch leaves a stain. I'm talking internally. I'm not talking externally. Then I'm talking about everything, even the things you love and cherish. Then when you touch them, they, it leaves a stain on them. It leaves some of this, this thick, gooey, sticky substance on them. It forms a barrier between us and life. It forms a barrier between us and others. It produces illness in the body and in the mind. Stress is real, and it really does affect the body, and nobody's questioning that today. But when I started this 40 years ago, it was a new idea. People go, oh, I don't think so. You had to convince them. You had to come up with scientific studies and proofs. No more. People know that now. Stress is a killer. Stress comes from mechanical living. These things that the work asks you to practice are to prevent this dead substance from forming itself in you. We have to cleanse ourselves at least twice a day. I recommend morning and evening. If you can cleanse yourself a third or fourth time during the day, I recommend you do that as often as possible. Meditation is a good opportunity to do that. Not everyone does it when they meditate. Some people sit and hate people while they meditate. They just sit there and think about what they don't like or what they're going to do later. Or they let their thoughts carry them off. They let their feelings carry them off. And they only once in a while ever get back to the now and back to being alive and back to being aware and fresh and in the body, embodying their bodies. In fact, all of us are like that to varying degrees. If we do this, cleanse ourselves morning and evening to dissolve these negative states, practice external consideration, practice placing ourselves rightly in the universe, in the great scheme of things, in scale, to see our own nothingness, to see that we're not superior to the people that we're trying to lord it over, that we're not superior to the people that we're being disgusted by or the people that we're alienated by or the people that we want to push away, to see that we're not less than the people we would like to be like, the people we admire, the people we look up to, to see that that is something inside of yourself that you're simply unwilling to see in yourself at this moment. Either way, either the person you admire or the person that you despise, it's something that you are unwilling to see in yourself right now. And it's giving you the opportunity to see it and to embrace it in yourself, to accept it in yourself. That is a cleansing, dissolving state that you can get into that will dissolve these negative states. Stop mechanical disliking. You don't do anything else this week. Work at stopping mechanical disliking. I don't care what it is. You don't like that kind of food? Work on stopping disliking that. You don't like that color? Work on stopping disliking that. 
You don't like that feeling, work on stopping disliking that. You don't like sand on your skin, work on stopping disliking that. Whatever it is, I'm not telling you how to do it. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm simply giving you an opportunity to stop mechanical disliking. Whatever it is you find yourself mechanically disliking, try to stop it. Maybe in just a little way, just try to stop it. The like what we dislike is the great key to giving up useless suffering. I've given you the key. You'll probably do with it what you have done with most of the keys given to you in life. You'll lose it because that's what we do. We lose our keys, but we usually find them again. When you find them, try and remember what they're for. Sometimes you lose a key and by the time you find it, you don't even know what it was for anymore. That lock's gone. You don't even know what it's for anymore. Try and remember what they're for. This releases us from narrow judgments of others, freeing us from our false self so that we may discover the self that we don't now know. That's the self that you want to remember. The one that you don't now know, the profound, deep, internal self that you cannot yet fathom. Enter the narrow gate. The linchpin of this work is the practical application of the ideas shared in the podcasts. If you'll go to solidrockvista.com, to the thoughts page, I've written a number of articles that will help you to practice the principles that we're sharing with you in the podcasts.